to celebrate Christ on the Lord's Day is what Christianity really is all about. I was saddened to hear that there, are, there were many churches that decided not to, to meet today, not just in the state of California, but all around the country, because it was Christmas Sunday. And I was asked what I thought about churches closing on Christmas Sunday. And I asked and I said, well, are they really a church if they're closed on Christmas Sunday? They really can't be a church if that's the case. But there are so many churches around our country that are closed on this day. They want you to spend time with your family and, and your friends. It's still the Lord's Day. I mean, there's only 52 of them in a year, except for next year, but there's only 52 of them, right? But so many churches closed on today so that people could spend time with their families. I, I just don't understand that. To gather together with the people of God and to worship your king is, is what Christianity is all about, especially on, on Christmas Sunday the day we celebrate the birth of the king. But it got me thinking about why it is so many people just really don't care that much about Christmas or celebrating Christ in the house of God with the people of God or just the fact that so many people miss Christmas. And I began to think about the Christmas story and how many people miss the the birth of the Christ when he came. And not much has changed in 2,000 years. When you think about it, people missed the birth of Christ simply because of a variety of reasons. One is because of lethargy or or apathy. They're just indifferent to his Messiahship. That was Israel at large. They were kind of ho-hum about becoming the Messiah. After all, it had been 400 silent years between uh, from the time that God last spoke in the Old Testament through an angel or him speaking to another individual. It had been dark years. And over time, people became apathetic and lethargic to the coming of the king. And so when he finally arrived, they missed him. And that's the way it is today, too. There are many people that are apathetic about the Messiah, And lethargy seems to have crept into many people's homes and lives. But there's another reason, and that's simply because of idolatry. That was Rome. How is it Rome missed the arrival of the Messiah? Because they were idol worshipers. They worshipped another god. Which leads me to this, not only is there apathy and lethargy and and idolatry, but there's also what we call jealousy. That was Herod. Herod was jealous that there was another king that was born. So jealous, he, he killed all the children two years and younger just so that he had no rival to his kingship. He was jealous because he didn't want to give up that which he had to serve a, another king. And there are people today who don't want to give up their own lives to serve the true king, the king of glory. So whether it's apathy or whether it's lethargy or whether it's idolatry or whether it's jealousy, there's, there's also familiarity. People are so familiar with the story. Yeah, it's okay. We, we can miss church this Christmas Sunday. It's okay. I mean, after all, we'll be there next week, and, unless it's, of course, New Year's Day and then maybe the following week. We know the story anyway. 
We've read it so many times. And people miss Christmas because of familiarity. That was the way it was with the family of the Christ. His brothers were so familiar with him that they weren't even giving their life to him until after the resurrection because it was just another brother to them. And so many times we can become so familiar with the story that we miss the, the great implications of all that the story means. Another reason simply is because of activity. There's something more important to us than going to church. There was something more important than, than, than going to the manger. There was something more important than worshiping the Messiah. There was always something that was going on that took precedence over church, that takes precedence over the worship of the king. And many people fall into that category. And yet, we begin to realize that for most people, they're just not interested. Iniquity, that's another one, that keeps us from the worship of the Messiah, coming to see him, scribes and, and Pharisees, as they were so into their own system. We'll call that religiosity because people get so religious that they, they go to church, but it means nothing to them because it's all ritualistic, Right? And so this religiosity has taken precedence in their lives and that they miss the meaning of, the, of, of Christmas because they're steeped in a religion. The scribes and Pharisees were that way. They were steeped in their Judaistic system that when the Messiah finally came, they missed him. So sad. But not much has changed in 2,000 years. What was true then is still true today. And yet for a brief moment on this Christmas Sunday, this Lord's Day in which we celebrate the birth of our King, we want to once again take you back to Bethlehem. We want to take you back to the grotto, which is the cave. Take you back to the, the feeding trough. Take you back to the manger. And help you see the, the, the majestic nature of that, uh, that manger. The mystery behind that manger. All that's there. For truly it's a manifestation of God's majesty and God's mystery. We tried to explain it to you over the last several times that we've been together to help you understand it's majestic because it's all centered around the, the power of God's providence. It's mysterious because it's centered around the precision of God's, of God's prophecy. It's, it's, a, it's the most fascinating story ever written. It's truly the story of the Christ. It's, it's the most incredible thing ever to be able to understand the meaning of Christmas and all that it does for people like you and me. And to be able to teach your children the effects of the Christ child's coming and what it means for them is just an incredible opportunity that God has given to us. And so as we've taken you back, we've, we've shown you that the manger is a place of, of mercy and a place of ministry. It's a place of authority. It's a place of adversity. It's a place of nobility. It's a place of necessity. And if you were with us last night, you can repeat after me, it was a place of glory. Some of you are here. And generosity. The manger is a place of glory and generosity where the glory of the Lord would shine all around. The brightness of God's character was there. 
Everything about the star that was promised, everything about the S-U-N, the son of righteousness that was promised, everything about the light of the world that was promised, everything about taking people out of darkness that was promised had, had come. God had come down to man. That's the glory of God and the generation, generosity of God all wrapped up into one. That our God in his glorious nature, as bright as he is, as unblemished as he is, as unapproachable as he is, because he is the light of the world, as unending as he is, he unleashed his presence among men so that no longer would be, he be um, avoided. No longer would he be rejected, but he'd be among men to be received and accepted. And when God unleashed his glory upon the earth... In that manger, encased in flesh was all that glory, all that brightness, all of that light. And Christ would say that he was and is the light of the world. And in him who is light is life. He is the light of all men. He is the life of all men. And without him, you sit in darkness. Without him, you do not know the way to glory. And so the manger is a place of glory and, and generosity, right? Think about it. It's an indescribable gift for God to love the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That, that's the eternal possession, having everlasting life. The eternal Lord offers eternal life to those who are eternally lost, so they could have his life. How generous is that? And that is the generosity of our God. He is all glorious and we are to give him glory. The angels did. Glory to God in the highest, they said, and peace on earth toward men with whom he is pleased. They glorified their God. How do you know that you, when you understand the Christmas story, you understand the glory and generosity of the gift? How do you know that? Well, you give glory to God. You put him on display. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse number 18, that we all with unveiled face, remember when Moses came down off of the mountain, he had to veil his face because he had conversed with the living God. His face was all aglow. And they put a veil over his face. But, but people knew that he had, he had been with the living God because there was a reflection of that glory on the face of Moses. So in that context, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, We all with unveiled faith, face, beholding as in a mirror, the Scriptures, the glory of the Lord are being transformed from one level of glory to the next level of glory, even as by the Spirit of God. In other words, when we open the Word of God, the light of life, and we begin to look at the light of the Word, that light shines upon us, and we become brighter and brighter and brighter. We become able to glow with the presence of the living God because He is within us. And we are being changed from one level of brightness to the next level of brightness to the next level of brightness. And so when we give glory to God, we are reflecting the righteous radiance of our Redeemer. That's what it means to give glory to God. You are reflecting His brilliance. You are shining forth His life. And we give glory to God. And when you recognize that in that manger was this Christ child, 
and encased in flesh was the beauty and glory that would shine forth for all men to see, for we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's wrapped up in the generosity of our God to come down to man. But the manger is also a place of excellency and inquiry. Excellency. The Bible says in Psalm 8, verse number 1, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. How excellent is your name in all the earth. The Bible says in Hebrews 1, verse number 4, that God has, has that, that Christ has, has a name that is more excellent than all the angels. In Psalm 150, verse number 2, the Bible tells us that God is excellent in his greatness. And the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 2, 9, that we who are a chosen generation, we who are a royal priesthood, are to declare the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. What are the excellencies of God? What is it about the manger that is so excellent? Why is there excellency? It's simply because excellency describes the virtues and the qualities of the Christ child. Everything that makes him excellent is wrapped up in his name. How excellent is your name, Lord, in all the earth? We know that there's pardon in the name, right? We know that because his name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. We know there's peace in his name because he's called the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9, verse number 6. We know there's power in his name because Isaiah 9, verse number 6 tells us that he is the the mighty God, the almighty one. We know there's providence in his name because through that name, we realize in Isaiah 9, 6 again, he is called the everlasting father or the originator of eternity. He is the one who creates and maps all things out. That's who he is. There's providence in his name. There's there's power in his name. There's peace in his name. There's pardon in his name. Everything about who God is is wrapped up in his name. For his name shall be called Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. It's the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. We know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because he is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. There is excellency in his name. So when you, when you go to the manger, what's wrapped in swaddling clothes are the virtues and the characters that, that, that describe to us the, the beauty and the splendor of the child. There's excellency in his name. And so when you look at the manger, you realize it's a place of excellency. But it's also a place of inquiry. Now, I know some of you don't say, well, that, that begins with an I. Well, if you're in England, it begins with an E. Because I have a son-in-law, have a son-in-law from, from England. I thought that the best way to make him, you know, acceptable in our church was to use the word that he would use. So inquiry beginning with an E. 
In other words, there is this investigation. There is this, there's this searching out. There, the manger is a place of inquiry, a place where you want to know and understand. Listen, when the shepherds came to the manger, remember what it says in, in, in Luke's gospel. It says these words. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing or this reality or this word that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which they had been told them about the child. Notice the simplicity and the singularity of the message. It was all about the child. It was all about the Savior who is Christ the Lord. So when they relayed the message, they declared the excellencies of the Messiah. They declared with simplicity. They made known the statement. What was the statement? For unto you this day, in the city of David, there's been born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Listen, when you share the gospel, it's a very simple message. It's a very singular message centered around one person, the Christ. It's not about you. It's not about your testimony. It's all about the Christ and his coming to earth to save us from our sin. And when the shepherds declared the excellencies of them, of him who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light, they made it a very simple but a very singular message to Mary. And when they did, what happened? The Bible tells them Mary would ponder all these things in her heart. She would treasure up all these things in her heart. Mary was a woman of great inquiry. She would want to study. She would want to investigate. Can you imagine being her age, 13, maybe 14, very young lady? But she would search the scriptures once she'd been told that she'd give birth to the Christ child. And she would become a student of the scriptures to understand more and more about the meaning of the Messiah. And so when the shepherds would come to her and explain to them that word that, she, that they had received, she would begin to ponder all these things in her heart, treasure them in her heart, seek after them in her heart. So important. Remember Anna in, Rev, in uh, Luke chapter 2? The Bible tells us these words. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84. Now you've got to add that up, right? So if she's betrothed at the age of 13, let's say, because that was the average age in which a young woman during the time of Christ was betrothed at 13, She was married for seven years. She became a widow. She's now 84, or for 84 years she was a widow. That means she's 104 years of age in Luke chapter 2. Now, if I lost you on that, get the tape, rewind it, you'll get it. But it says, and then it says, she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to give thanks to God. The moment that Simeon had taken the Christ child in his hands 
and gave praise and honor to God because God had told Simeon that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. So Simeon lived every day in anticipation of the coming Messiah. God says, you will not die until you see the Christ. So every day in the temple, he was anticipating that this would be the day. This would be the day. And he was an old man. Took the Christ child in his arms and began to praise God. It was at that moment that Anna, the prophetess, she came and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. In other words, she's 104 years of age. She's been a widow for 84 years, okay? After being married for seven years, having been betrothed to 13, more than likely. So give it, take a few years here and there. Maybe she's 101, maybe she's 106. Who's, who's going to argue with that, right? But the fact of the matter is, she was one who was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. It says that Simeon was longing for the consolation of Israel. They were both doing the same thing. There, there was this searching, there was this anticipation, there was this desire. And Anna, she was, a, she was a prophetess, so she would speak for God. The Bible tells us that she served her God, but she searched for her God. That's what made her a unique woman. Not her searching, okay? Not her serving, but her searching for God. She would search for him day in and day out, anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. And she would speak to all those other ones who happened to be looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. You see, the, the manger is a place of inquiry. When you begin to look at the people who, who are mesmerized by the arrival of the Messiah, it should cause us to, to search more and more, to investigate more and more about who this Christ is, why he came, why he died, how he died, everything surrounding him. You know, I was sitting this morning in my office. I, I laid down in my office an awful lot. And I opened my Bible, and under my Bible, under the tree, I have a tree in my office, of course I do, but I have a tree in my office at home as well. And, and, I, and I sit there by, by the light of the, of the tree and read the story. And I reread it, and I reread it over and over and over again. Because every word matters. Amen. Every phrase matters. Every verse matters. And everything about the coming Messiah is, is mind-blowing to me. And to be able to understand how God orchestrates everything to come together causes me to search more and more as I study about the Christ child. So the manger, it's a place of mercy. It's a place of ministry. It's a place of authority and adversity, nobility and necessity, glory and generosity, excellency and inquiry. The manger is also a place of royalty. Of royalty. You must understand the nature of the child. He's the king of all kings. It's a place of royalty, and in a moment I'll tell you it's a place of responsibility. But the manger is about the royalty of the Christ child. You know, he's called the son of man. That's what Daniel called him. It's a messianic title. So when he came, he fulfilled that prophecy. He's also called the son of David. 
Okay, Psalm 89. He fulfilled Davidic promise because he was coming as the king. But he's also the son of God, right? He fulfills divine promise. It's the child that was, was given, or the child that was born, it was a son that was given because he is the son of God. So this son of man, this son of David, this son of God is the king of the universe. And I began thinking about that this morning. And think about everything about the arrival of the Messiah centers around his royalty. And I think so many times we forget that. But everything in the Old Testament was about the anticipation of his royalty. The king was coming. He's called the king of glory in uh, Psalm 24. So the Old Testament was about the coming of the Messiah. Remember the Old Testament that the Messiah was going to be a prophet, a priest, and a king. Because those are the three offices that, that were anointed. And he would be a prophet out of the prophecy of Deuteronomy chapter 18. He'd be a, a priest from the prophecy of Psalm 110. But he'd be a king based on the promise, he give, promise given to David and the prophecies surrounding the fact that uh, the star would, would hold the scepter and Shiloh, the one to whom it belongs, the scepter, he'd be a king. So from the very beginning, the book of Genesis, it was all about the coming of royalty, the coming of the king, see? That's why we bow in submission to the king, because that's who he is. And so everything in the Old Testament was about the anticipation of the king. Why? Because there was a revelation about the king. There was prophecy surrounding the king. So with that revelation came all of this anticipation until one day there was this illumination about the king when the glory of the Lord would shine all around and the shepherds would realize that the, the Savior is the Messiah who is the Lord of all lords and king of all kings. And from that illumination to his royalty came the recognition of his royalty by the Magi. They were kingmakers. They came in search of a king. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? Isn't it interesting that, that nobody followed them to find the king? Nobody was that interested in, in, in another king. But the Magi, they came, and they came from a far distance. And so the Christ child was around two years of age when they, when they finally got there. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? Because they recognized that the star had come. The star was Messiah. The Messiah was king. That's why they gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold symbolizes royalty, right? Frankincense symbolizes deity. Myrrh symbolizes his humanity. So even these kingmakers, these first Gentile converts to Christianity were people who recognized him as God, as king, who would die because in his humanity he'd be wrapped in myrrh. So even they knew that. So there was this recognition of his kingship based on the revelation and anticipation and the illumination of his kingship. And then there was what we'll call a documentation 
of his kingship. The genealogies. Matthew 1, Luke chapter 3. It's very clearly documented that the Messiah is the king. He's the descendant of David and will sit on the throne of David. So there's a documentation in Scripture about the king and his royalty is coming again. But yet, after that, came a presentation of the king. John the Baptist came preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because the king has arrived. After he was preaching, came Christ preaching. Same message. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because the king has come to present the kingdom. So there was a presentation of his royalty. But soon after the presentation of his royalty was a rejection of his royalty. Right? They rejected him as king. Pilate brought him out having, having beaten him and said, Behold, your king. But they were determined not to have that king rule over them. And so, from the presentation of the king to the rejection of the king came the crucifixion of the king. In fact, even the inscription above the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Even the thief on the cross recognized his kingship. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He recognized that Jesus was the king at the crucifixion of the king. After the crucifixion of the king came the resurrection of the king. He was raised from the dead. From the resurrection of the king, there was the ascension, of course, of the king and the coronation of the king in glory, but there's going to come a retribution by the king when he comes again. And from that retribution, there will become a a celebration of the king for all eternity. But our Lord is king. Everything about the scriptures says around his kingship. But yet he's not the king that we necessarily recognize. I could tell you that, that he is the the light king because he lights the way he is. I could tell you that he is a liberating king because he's that. He sets us free. Only kings can set us free. He's the lion king based on Genesis 49 and Revelation chapter 5. He's also the life-giving king. But the most important title is that he is the lamb king. And we miss that. He is the lamb king. That's why we don't understand his kingship. He's not just an ordinary king. He is a lamb king. And the book of Revelation spells that out for us. Because in Revelation 5, John sees the lamb on the throne. That's a lamb king. He's the lamb on the throne. In Revelation chapter 12, he sees the lamb defeat Satan. That's the lamb king. In Revelation 17, he sees the lamb fight the kings of the earth and defeat them because he is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the lamb king. In Revelation 19, he weds, the king weds his church. In Revelation 21, the lamb king lights the eternal city. In Revelation 22, the lamb king sits on the throne and from that throne flow rivers of living water. See, the the book of Revelation describes him as a lamb king. 
And so that's why, that's why Israel didn't understand the kingship of the Messiah when he came. That's why they rejected him. Even when he came into, into Jerusalem on that, on that Palm Monday, when they sing praises to his name, blessed is he who comes, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They, they were praising him as their king. They wanted him to set up his, his kingdom then. And yet, a few days later, they would reject him as their king. But on that day, they praised him as the king. And they, they quoted a messianic psalm, Psalm, psalm 118, that dealing with the, the expectant coming king. But the manger is a place of royalty. When you go to the manger, the king is lying there. Mary gave birth to the king. He is our king. Have you recognized him as that? Because the manger is not just a place of royalty, it's a place of responsibility. It's a place of responsibility. In other words, you can't just leave the manger unchanged. You can't leave the manger the way you approach the manger. Do you think the shepherds did? Don't think so. They went away praising God, glorifying his name. Mary was so overwhelmed with what the shepherd said, she treasured all things in her heart. She would never be the same again, nor Joseph. Everything was about the arrival of the king and the responsibility that you and I have, having understood more and more about this feeding trough, this, this place where the Christ child would lay wrapped in swaddling clothes, is all about our responsibility to submit to him and bow to his authority. He is the king. And notice that the shepherds, they went in haste to see this word, this reality that was spoken to them. They didn't hesitate. Because, you know, when you, when you hear about the Christ and you're called by God, there is no hesitation. You make the decision, you go, and you bow before him. The Magi, they went in haste. They just had a long way to go from Persia, that's all. But they went as fast as they could, looking for the king. When they saw him, they bowed in submission to him. Because you see, when you recognize the excellency of the manger, the one who lies in the manger, all the virtues and qualities of this child, you must bow before him and humbly submit yourself to him. When Christ said to James and John, he said, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. The Bible says they immediately left their nets and followed him. No hesitation. They dropped everything. They dropped their future. They left their family. And they followed the Messiah. When Matthew the tax collector was at his table and the Messiah walks by, he said to Matthew, you, follow me. And Matthew immediately gets up, leaves his tax collecting table, 
and follows the Messiah. No hesitation. So whether you have to leave your family, leave your friends, leave your future, or in Matthew's case, leave your financial stability, you follow him when he calls, no matter what. Because none of that matters when it comes to the king. When the king beckons you, you come. When the king speaks, you say yes. You bow in submission to the king. And that's the responsibility that every one of us has. This Christmas day, this Christmas Sunday, this opportunity for us to reflect back once again on the majesty and mystery of the manger, our responsibility is to bow before him and to follow him. We might serve him explicitly. What better way to celebrate Christmas than to say, Lord, I bow in submission to you as my king. Whatever you ask me to do, I will do. Wherever you ask me to go, I will go. Whatever you ask me to say, I will say. Because I recognize the manger is a place of glory, and I want to give you glory. It's a place of generosity. And you've been so kind to give me that indescribable gift. Lord, I realize it's a place of mercy. And mercy is not something I achieve, it's something I receive. It's a place of ministry because you came to seek and to save that which is lost. A place of absolute authority because you are the Lord of all lords. It's a place of nobility. It's a place of absolute necessity. I need Christ as my Savior. My prayer for you and your family is that today would be the day of your salvation. For today is that day. Don't hesitate. Don't wait. If one thing is true about the Christmas story, it's this, that those who recognized the Messiah never stopped, never hesitated. They immediately followed him and served him. May that be you this Christmas season. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you, Lord, that we can gather together and focus once again on your majesty. We are so grateful, Lord, for all that you have done. And we just ask on this day that if there be someone among us who has yet to bow in submission to your authority, that this would be the day they'd come to recognize you as their king and Lord, Savior, and Messiah. And that for those of us who have, that, Lord, we would rekindle anew our relationship with you and live in humble submission to your authority all the days of our lives until you come again as you most surely will. In Jesus' name, amen.